love for you to read it with me. We're reading from the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. The Apostle Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the blessing of being together as a church body. To be proclaiming your name, bringing glory to your being. Father, will you help us um, settle our hearts that we may receive the truth that you would have us uh, through Pastor Jeff. Would you give him the energy, the passion that would convey our heart to right action and right belief. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Patrick. Well, Happy New Year. You know, I was reflecting on this last year, <clears throat> a couple days ago, just thinking about all the ways in which the Lord has just been so good. And I hope that's true for you. I hope that's been your experience too. I've thought about how the Lord has just uh, blessed us and blessed me personally and our family, but also how he saved us, right, from calamity, like falling off of ladders and almost breaking your back. God is good. Who knows what next year will bring, but my hope and my prayer for you is that your year will be full of his grace and full of his blessing. If you have your Bible, you can open right there to Romans chapter 11. We'll be primarily in that chapter. I'll be doing a flyby the whole chapter today. We're going to be looking at sort of one thought that Paul has. Uh, when I was in my probably first or second ninth grade year, I remember that I had, uh, somehow I had come by having two girlfriends, and not consecutively at the same time, simultaneously, and, uh, and I decided I, I wanted to keep these girlfriends, and so the whole semester I was working frantically and honestly miserably to try to keep them from finding out that I was dating the other. And so at the end of the year, like before like school was out, I decided to write them both a long letter of my undying love. In the old days, we called these love letters, uh, not text messages or emails. You had to use what we called it stationary. You take out a pen, you write a letter. And, uh, and I had written both of the girls a love letter. The problem is I accidentally switched the letters. <laughs> and I did not know that I had done that. Until later, Amy and Becky called me. Now, it turns out that initially, my, my, my letters that I had switched that I had given to them caused them a little bit of, of frustration toward each other. Like they were frustrated at each other, but then they quickly realized, once they commiserated by phone, that really their ire should be taken out on me. So calling from one of their houses. Now, in the old days, we had what was called a phone, and it was on the wall. <laughs> Don't know why that was true. It just was. And if you wanted to talk on that kitchen phone that was attached to the wall in your kitchen, you had to have like a 58-foot-long cord, and then you could go talk in your room. And so they were calling me to let me know they were both dumping me. And I remember I gave them some dumb excuse. I just said, look, girls, I just got too much love for one woman. And they were like, 
They were like, bye bye And as much as I deserve that, I have to say, it still hurt. It hurt to be rejected. It hurt to be dumped. And every human being has some experience with rejection. Looking back on my life, I can think of all the things the Lord has done for me, and the vast majority of stories in my life, sometimes just a chain of rejections. And so the big question that Paul is going to ask is going to drive his thinking in this chapter, in chapter 11 today, is has God rejected his own people? Has God rejected the Jews? Now that he has turned salvation and offered it through the Jews, through their Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, to the whole world, has God now just rejected the people he used to love, the people whom he had chose? Paul's overarching theme, chapters 9 through 11, has been one sustained thought, and that God has elected from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles a people who are made righteous by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so let's read the text today, Romans 11, 1 through 6. He says, I ask, then has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or, or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? In 1 Kings 19, he says, how he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left. And they're trying to take my life too. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to the false god Baal. And in the same way then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. So we're going to look at Paul's argument for why God has not rejected, abandoned, cast away his original people ethnic and national Israel. Essentially, he gives us four arguments you can track along in your bulletin here, fill in the blanks. We're going to look at Paul's personal experience. We're going to look at God's pattern of salvation. We're going to look at God's purpose in election and a prophecy, an apparent prophecy of Israel's reincorporation. So let's look first at Paul's case for why God has not rejected ethnic Israel. Number one, Paul's personal experience. Verse 1, he says, for I too, I'm an ethnic Jew. I'm an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. Notice what he says here. He says, in the tribe of Benjamin. Now, in the first century, Benjamin was one of those tribes, one of the three tribes that you could trace all the way back to Abraham. The tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, and the tribe of Levi. You could go all the way back. There were no gaps in the records at all. And so this is his way of saying, now look, I'm a Jew. I can trace my lineage all the way back. I'm a pure Abrahamic Jew. And so you get the sense here that Paul is trying to say, just think about it for a second. Think about who I am. I was a zealous rabbi, a student of the Jerusalem Rabbinic College. My family, wealthy family from Tarsus, beautiful, wealthy Tarsus sent me to study in Jerusalem under the great Gamaliel, the great rabbi Gamaliel. And I studied under him, and Paul says elsewhere in Philippians and in the book of Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians, he says, look, I was an up-and-coming rabbi. I was, I was ascending up the order far faster, like much faster than my fellow students. 
And so just think for a second about who I am. I'm that guy. And I thought that my service to the Lord, like the best way I could serve God, was to go out and persecute this new Jewish sect called the Jesus Way. And I persecuted them, he says, to the death. I dragged them out of their homes. I threw them in prisons. And then I stood and presided over Stephen's death. And this Jewish sect, this Jesus cult, they believed that the Messiah of Israel had died on a Roman cross, which is appalling to a Jew. They believed that he had risen from the dead, which was their national promise. It was a promise that God gave them as a people, but now he's fulfilling it in one Jew, one ethnic Israelite, the Messiah. And they believed that after rising from the dead, he had ascended if you can believe it, to the right hand of Almighty God to share God's throne. And when he's presiding over Stephen's death and his stoning, this is what Stephen claims to see. And it's as if Paul is saying, don't you know who I am? Think about me for a second. Here I am, a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, born in the tribe of Benjamin, trained in the Jerusalem Academy, and I'm on my way to Damascus, the city of Damascus, to do it even more there. And then I met Jesus. Jesus, in his grace and his pure mercy, stepped out of eternity and opened my eyes and then blinded me with his brilliant glory. And I hit the ground and I heard a voice calling me, calling me. And so Paul wants to say this, Paul wants to say, surely God has not rejected ethnic Jews. I'm an ethnic Jew, and he called me by his grace. Paul knows this, and he knows this is consistent, the consistent witness in the Old Testament that God said he would preserve them as a people, 1 Samuel 12, 22. Samuel says, the Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name and because he has determined to make you his own people. Right here in this context, the people have sinned. They have worshiped false gods. They have done everything they could to be abandoned by God. And yet Samuel says, the Lord is not going to abandon you. You're his people. He's not going to cast you away. He's not going to throw you out. Psalm 94, 14, the Lord will not leave his people or abandon his heritage. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, it says, they refused. He's recalling Israel's story. He says, they, the Israelites, refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them, but you are a forgiving God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and you did not abandon them. Here, Nehemiah is praying after they've returned from exile. They've gone into Babylon and gone into Persia. They've been exiled in these foreign nations because of their sin and their idolatry, and yet God says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to bring some of you back, and you're going to rebuild your temple and rebuild this place. God hasn't abandoned you, and Paul says, I'm proof of that. If anybody is proof of that, it's me. Number two, Paul's second reason for God not totally rejecting his kinsmen, according to the flesh, is that God's pattern is to save a remnant. God's pattern of salvation is to save a remnant. So then he appeals to this right away. He says in verse two, or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, Lord, they have killed your prophets and 
and torn down your altars, and I'm the only one left, and they're, now they're trying to kill me. So he appeals to this idea of God saving from within the group, the larger group, a remnant. Now, what is a remnant? The term just is used twice in the New Testament, once in Romans 9, once in Romans 11. And it refers in the Bible to individuals who comprise a smaller group within the larger group, right? And so examples would include Noah, Joseph, the returning exiles. Now, I'm giving you a few passages. You can look these up later. If you're in a small group, you guys can take, take all night. Look these up. This is fun. And you can track this whole theme of God saving a group within the group all the way through the Bible, all the way through. And so for Paul, no passage better illustrates this pattern of salvation than the story of Elijah and the promise of, of a remnant given to him, the northern kingdom. For those of you who were not raised in church or maybe you're not a Christian and you're here today, just, I'll just give you a thumbnail sketch of the story. The northern kingdom prophet Elijah faced the fury and the cruelty of Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. Remember that story? Oh, the king and the queen, uh, these were, they were kings of Israel. They were ruling over Israel, and yet they were worshiping Canaanite gods. They were worshiping false gods. And then they killed the prophets. And so here is Elijah. Now, Elijah calls for a showdown with their prophets, the prophets of Baal. That's his name, the god Baal. And so he says, bring your altar, bring your stones, set up your altar, come to Mount Carmel, we're both going to set up altars, and we're going to call on our God to see who brings down fire from heaven to light the altar. And they're like, yeah, yeah. So the whole guild, the whole group shows up, and they build their altar, and they start dancing around and chanting mantras, and they're cutting themselves, and they're just, they're begging Baal, God Baal. <laughs> to light their altar. And in the story, this infamous story, Elijah begins to taunt them. And it's so hilarious in Scripture. Like, he begins to say things, Has, did your God go take a nap? Where is he? Where's Baal? Is he, is he, did he go to the latrine? Did he, is he on the toilet? He literally says that in Hebrew. It says, is he, did he go relieve himself? Where's he at? Right? And then so when they're exhausted and they're done and they, can, they no longer have places to cut themselves, he goes, okay, living God. And he calls out to the Lord in this short prayer and fire comes out of heaven. Now what he had done is he had told his servants to drench this altar with barrels of water and dig a trench around it. So now he has this moat around his altar and the fire comes out of heaven and not only lights the altar, it lights Baal's altar and then it, it immediately, the fire is so hot it evaporates all the water just like that. Now you would think in this moment that this is a prime opportunity for the whole nation to repent and turn back in sackcloth and ashes and, and turn back to Yahweh, the one true God of the universe. But the prophets of Baal don't do that. You would think that the news would get back to the king and the queen and they also would, would cover themselves in ashes and repent and cry out to God for repentance and ask for forgiveness, but they don't do it either. 
In fact, they become more hardened and they become more dangerous than they ever were before. And so Elijah does what we all would have done. He runs and he goes and sits under a tree and he cries. And he cries out to God, what a, what a useless life I've lived. I've served my entire life. I've served you, God of heaven, with my whole life. These wicked, idolatrous people have killed all of my guildsmen. They've killed all the prophets. Now they're after me, and it looks like I'm the last righteous person left on earth. And God says, no, you're not. I have a remnant. I have 7,000 people within this nation, this wicked, idolatrous nation. I have 7,000 who have not and would never bow to Baal or any other false god. And so God says, I've got a remnant. Now, Paul writes in verses 5 and 6 in the same way, in that way. There is also at the present time a remnant of Israelites, ethnic Jews that have been chosen by grace. And now if by grace, then not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. So Paul himself has experienced personally what it's like to be plucked out of Judaism, to be chosen, to be called and he's giving them an example in the Old Testament. Remember that story with Elijah. This is how God does it. God has some. He has some people left. And the third reason he gives, number three, is that God's purpose in hardening national Israel. This one's a little bit tougher. This one is we got to sort of put on our thinking caps here and try to get our hands around his theology. And then his application of his theology from chapter 9. He says in verses 7 and 10, what then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, that is righteousness, but the elect did find it. Who are the elect? He's talking about elect Israelites, elect Jews, and the rest, the rest of who? Jews, the nation. The rest of the nation, were, they were hardened. As, a, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. He gave them eyes that cannot see, ears that cannot hear, and to this day, uh, David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall, and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. What, what is Paul driving at here? He's trying to reiterate a theology of election that he taught in Romans chapter 9. He's trying to close the loop on this. He's trying to complete the idea here. He's trying to show us that God, in the same way that God elected Abraham, God chose Abraham instead of his brothers, Nahor and Haran. And God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. And then from Isaac, he chose Jacob and not Esau. And then from Jacob, he chose the tribe of Judah to bring forth the Messiah. And then among the Jews, the sons of Jacob, he chose Jesus, not the rest of the Jews, to reconstitute his people. You see, God has the right to elect whom he wills. And what he says in Romans chapter 9, if you remember, as he says, God is the potter and we are the clay. And if, and if God wants to take that lump of clay and make from it two vessels, one for his wrath and one for his election and salvation, who is to gainsay God? Who calls God's judgment on the matter into question? And it's as if Paul is saying there in Romans chapter 9, listen, if, if that's not a good enough explanation for you, that God is God, I don't have another philosophical explanation for you. I, there's, no other, there's nothing I could do to, to solve it for you. 
And, and when we do try to bring a philosophical explanation to it, and instead of accepting what Paul just says there, what happens is we either distort or diminish his doctrine of election, which we ought not do. So in that chapter, in chapter 9, his burden is to answer the question, what justifies God's choice? What, what is the justification for choosing Pharaoh to harden and choosing Moses to deliver and bring salvation? What's the justifying reason? And Paul says, God is God and we are not. That's the reason. But here his burden is to apply it now to ethnic and national Israel. I'm going to say that again. Here his burden is to take that same theology that he worked out in chapter 9 and now apply it to ethnic and national Israel. Here he says, listen, the same is true of Israel today, ethnic and national Israel. Chapter, so uh, why does God harden Israel? Well, the first reason is so that his purpose in election might stand. Chapter 9, verse 11, he says, so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. So what was the purpose that would not be thwarted or stopped or foiled? It was not according to the will of man. It was according to the will of God. In chapter 10, verse 19, he goes on. He says, I will, make my, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. <clears throat> chapter 11, verse 11. He says, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Chapter 11, verse 14. I magnify my ministry if, if I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some. In God's own purposes, he raised Israel, Israel up for this purpose, to deliver to the world the Messiah, through whom everyone who believes is saved. And in doing so, the Jews, their hearts were hardened against the Lord Jesus. And Paul says, I magnify my ministry among them so that I, in the hopes that I may provoke them to belief. You see what God has done. He's poured out His Holy Spirit among the Gentiles. Don't you want to join this? In chapter 11, verse 32, he says, For God has imprisoned all, the Jew and the Gentile, in disobedience, so that He may have mercy on all. B, because they heard the message. They understood it, and they refused to believe it. Chapter 10, verse 14, he says, How can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? Chapter 10, verse 16, he says, Lord, who has believed our message? Quoting Isaiah 53.1. Did they not hear? He says, yes, they did. Did Israel not understand? He says, yes, they did. They heard it because it was in their prophets, and they heard it read to them every single Sabbath. And they, under, they understood it far enough to reject it. They understood it that much. And so what is the problem? Chapter 11, verse 20, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith, verse 27. And even if they, if they do not remain in unbelief, they'll be grafted in. So he gives this analogy of the olive tree. Now, the olive tree is the national symbol of Israel. Here, he says Jesus is the olive tree. And we are the branches. You've got the ethnic Jewish branch, and you've got the Gentile branch. And they've been cut off because of their unbelief. And that's what he teaches here. And so, because they heard the message, they understood it, but then they refused to turn to Jesus so that they might be saved. They've been hardened. He goes on, because despite God's offer of salvation, they actually rebelled against it. So, the problem here is not just that they 
eh, didn't believe. The problem is they, were, they are in open rebellion against God's promise. Chapter 10, verse 21, he says, All day long I held out my hands to a disobedient, defiant people. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly portrays himself this way. I've held out my hands to you. I'm asking you, come back. I'm calling to you, come back into the fold. Leave your idolatrous ways. Turn to faith. And the more we defy God, the more it hardens us against God. And they rebelled. And he says, because they pursued a righteousness according to works of the law instead of by faith. Chapter 9, verse 31, he ends that chapter by saying, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why? Because they pursued it by works, as if it were by works, apart from faith. Chapter 10, verse 3, since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. Which is what? It's Christ, who is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Chapter 11, verse 6. Again, now if it is by grace, it is not by works. What's going on here? They sinned against the Lord. They rebelled against his way of righteousness. And then they tried to contrive their own system of righteousness, which honestly is what we all do in our flesh, don't we? That's what we do. And they try to work it out in their own system. And what they had was, so by Jesus' day, understand, by Jesus, by Paul's day, religious Judaism had won out. Listen, the exile worked, and it worked all too well. Because after the exile, once they come back into their land 70 years after that, boy, they are monotheists. They don't worship any other god anymore. <laughs> they are monotheists. They worship God and then their religious leaders look at their law and they go, man, how did we go wrong here? Well, we didn't obey the law, so here, let's do this. Let's take the big ten, the ten commandments, then let's create all these other laws to govern our practice of the ten. And that's what they did. They dotted every I, they crossed every T, they filled in every blank, every possible situation that you could think of. They came up with a law to govern your practice. And so Paul says, listen, they were trying to achieve a righteousness by the law, couldn't do it, were frustrated by that, and instead they forgot their national story. Paul is saying, we forgot our story. Our story is not just cold legalism, obeying the law, coming up with more laws to govern those laws. No, our story is Abraham who was called and made a promise and then he believed and God credited it to his account as righteousness. And Paul says that's our story. It's trusting a promise. And God has made a promise to save us through the Messiah. And you got to believe that promise. You got to trust in that promise. So Paul reminds them of their national story. Go back to Abraham, not just to the law. So we must understand that national ethnic Israel has undergone a partial hardening of the heart due to the fact that God purposed for them to do so. And they failed to believe the message. And they rebelled against God's righteousness, instead pursued a righteousness according to works instead of by faith. And this has resulted now in an opportunity for the Gentiles to come into the faith by droves. Paul's fourth reason for believing that God has not thrown his ethnic people away, number four, is a prophecy of their reinstatement. Well, he knows something we don't know. Paul raises the possibility that ethnic Jews could easily be re-engrafted or come back into the Christian faith, which he calls the olive tree, back into Christ. Verses 23 and 24, he says, 
And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. So this is about possibilities here. This is about what God can do and what they might experience. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree, against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted in to the olive tree? And so Paul stresses the prospect of unbelieving ethnic national Jews coming back to the faith and leaving their rebellion and re-embracing Christ and God's plan for salvation. But then he goes beyond that. It's not just the possibility that they might come back in, It seems like he makes a prophecy here, gives us a prophecy here that a remnant of them will come back in. Look at verses 25 through 27. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be misinformed about this mystery, this secret. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you the secret. So that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion... He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So there are a couple of interpretive issues here that we actually have to address. Scholars have been debating about about these issues for several hundred years pretty intensely. Uh, Christian theologians have tried to solve them for 2,000 years, and we're just going to solve it here today. You want to do that? Let's do that. So the, so the issues are, what does he mean when he says the fullness of the Gentiles has come in until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in? What does that phrase mean? And then in verse 26, what does he mean by in this way, all Israel will be saved? Well, I'll just, to make a long story short, I think what he's saying here, because of the future grammar of the text, the text uses some future grammar where he seems to expect that this will actually happen sometime off in the future. And now remember, he's already said there is presently a remnant by grace. So any Jew, any ethnic national Jew who becomes a Christian today is part of that remnant. But I think what Paul is seeing is that less and less of his countrymen are believing in Jesus, and more and more Gentiles are. And he's seeing that Christianity is not not a Jewish thing anymore. And so I think what he sees prophetically is off in the future, someday there's going to be a remnant. God is going to call Jews back to their Messiah in droves. And so the future language that he uses here, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, seems like a prophecy. But what does that mean? Well, it probably means something like, until their time is up, right? It's probably an an idiom to mean, until the last Gentile comes in. Look how Jesus uses a very similar phrase. Luke 21, 24, it says, they, the Jews, this is in the end times discourse called the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21. He says, when they, the Jews, will be killed by the sword and be led captive into all the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And I think that kind of phrase just means until the time is up, until God in his foreknowledge knows when that window of Gentile activity is going to close. So what does he mean now in this way, all Israel will be saved? Well, it could refer to the entire uh, ethnic, national uh, Israel, could refer to the entire nation, or it could refer to a remnant from within the nation, and that's what I think it means. 
I think here in the context, he's already established there's a remnant, there's the group, right? He's established the spiritual Israel in Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 9. He's already talked about there being a true Israel, true Jews, or true children of Abraham. The real children of Abraham are the children by faith. They're the faith children. And so I think he does make a distinction here between the ethnic Jew and the spiritual Jew. But I don't think he's including in that the Jew and the Gentile, at least in this line. I think in his mind he really has here the Jews in his mind. And so Paul's point is to say that the hardening of the heart of national ethnic Israel is partial. It's partial. Some, some Jews like me and the apostles are coming to faith and they believe in Christ. And some Jews in the next 2,000 years are going to come to faith and they're going to believe in Christ. But it's also that exile is impermanent because someday God is going to bring a remnant in and there's going to be a revival among them. And the question is, when is that going to be? When is it going to be? I think it's, we're starting to see it now. I think we are starting to see it now. A century ago, you, you could not name one group of people who were a revival of Jewish Christians. Today, there are between 130, estimated between 130,000 to 500,000, half a million believers of Jewish descent. And so understand that we are seeing, relatively speaking, compared to the last 2,000 years, we are seeing a veritable renaissance of belief among the Jews today. So maybe, maybe we live in a time when we are going to see the Lord Jesus return in our lifetime. I hope we do. Even so, come Lord Jesus. So in summary, God has not rejected ethnic Israel. God chose them to bring the way of salvation by faith in Christ and his sacrificial work on the cross to the Jews to save them from their national sins, their personal sins, and then through them to offer salvation to the world, and then through that offer of salvation to the world to make them jealous so that they believe again. But instead of receiving Jesus and believing on his name for eternal life, they rejected their own Messiah. They were hardened in unbelief and rebellion, and instead they doubled down on a pursuit of works righteousness rather than by faith. And Paul and other Jewish Christians are evidence that God has not cast them aside completely. God has not thrown them away as a people, no. Paul envisions a day when God is going to bring a future remnant of Jews back into the olive tree and the time of the Gentiles will be up. The last Gentile convert will come into the family. So what's our application today? Well, first, I think we have to say we worship a God of mercy and justice. Paul says two things about God in this chapter. He's a God of kindness and a God of severity, right? A God of kindness and a God of severity. He's a God of mercy and a God of grace. And he's a God of judgment and a God of wrath. And if your gospel is missing either one of those elements, you got an incomplete gospel. You don't have a gospel. Because you and I are slated to go through a future day in which God will judge the secret intentions and the hearts and the sins of man. And yet in his grace and his kindness and his mercy, mercy God offers us salvation in the cross alone. And I, so I think from this passage, you and I can take great comfort in the fact that we serve a God who is gracious and severe. A God who is gracious and also the judge. 
I think secondly, we see that sometimes God grace, God's grace to us is temporary exile instead of obliteration. Isn't that good news? I mean, I look at Israel here and all of their sins, and finally the greatest, most infinite sin of rejecting their Messiah, and I think if any nation should have been cast aside, it should have been them, but Paul says he hasn't, and he won't. All day long his hands are stretched out to an obstinate, defiant people saying, come back. And if that teaches us anything, that teaches that God has great patience and long-suffering for us, doesn't he? God is very long-suffering. And when I find myself walking away and drifting away from Christ, God's hands are outstretched to say, come back. Come back. Do you have people in your life today who seem temporarily cut off? Cut out of the, the tree? Disciplined in their rebellion? My encourage to you this morning is to pray for them. Don't give up. It can be a child or a grandchild. You could be a friend or a coworker, or somebody or a brother or a sister, somebody you really you love to the core of your being in the depths of your heart. Understand that God has not given up on them. Understand that all day long God plans to hold his hands out for salvation. And you don't know what God's will is. You pray for them. I have people in my life right now I love and I couldn't love them anymore and I pray for them every single day. I prayed for them during this worship service. I prayed the songs over them. <laughs> like just praying, God, save that person. Let this be true of them. Will you pray for them? And then lastly, I would say pray for ethnic Israel. Pray for them. Pray that indeed they will experience another Pentecost and a Jewish revival would sweep the world. Wouldn't that be great? How powerful would that be to have three million Jews out in the world sharing the love and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he's done on the cross? How powerful would that be? And if you're in my Revelation class, you know that's, that's going to come. That's, they're one of the two witnesses. That's a different subject. Let's pray. A little random ending to the prayer. <laughs> Father, we thank you so much that we thank you for your character. We thank you for your integrity. We thank you that you're a good God. We thank you that you're a gracious God, full of kindness, but also a God who is the judge of every man's sins. And we thank you that you've not given up on us. You've not cast us aside and cast us away in the same way that you did not cast away your original people. And so, Lord, would you... In times when we are prone to wonder, in times when we are prone to walking away from you, would you bring us back gently by the Holy Spirit? Just bring us back to your love and your kindness and your grace. And God, we pray for your, your ethnic people, the Jews who are our brothers and sisters. And so many of them are coming to faith today and returning from their rebellion, from their sin, from their unbelief to the Messiah and his death on a cross. God, would you just warm their hearts to the truth? God, would you pour out the Holy Spirit and Pentecostal power, pour the Holy Spirit out among them and bring many, many sons, Israeli sons, into the faith today, we pray. And let them be a powerful witness in these last days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you.